Galatians chapter 5 tonight. We are continuing our series on the nine, the fruits of the Spirit. And this week we are looking at the second to last fruit of the Spirit. And so let's go ahead and read Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, and we will jump right into our lesson afterwards. So this has kind of been our text, our kind of launching pad, as we talk about each of the things that the Holy Spirit works in us as believers. And Paul the Apostle says here in Galatians 5, verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And tonight we're going to look at that fruit of the Spirit called meekness, the second to last one. And this one was an interesting one to study because I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time that I used the word meekness in my conversation. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's not a word that comes up oftentimes. We don't go around calling each other meek or we don't, calling, we don't go around calling ourselves meek. It's not something that is sort of a word that's used a lot in conversation or even in writing. It's not something we use. It's not a, a common word. And actually, I think that's an interesting diagnostic of our society, right? If you, if you were to look at the definition of meekness, you would be, uh, you, it would be very apparent why it's not used. Our society is sort of addicted to strength and improving their strength, improving the limits of their power and their endurance, their might, all these sorts of things. That's why we have such things called CrossFit games, where people doing fitness compete to show that they're fitter than another person. <laughs> they want to prove to other people that they are stronger than the people that are underneath them. And so with that sort of ideology sort of running our society, it's easy to see why a quality like meekness isn't something that pops up in our vocabulary. You know, just looking at meekness, if you just type that word into Google, you're going to get a definition that sounds like this. Meekness is quiet, gentle, easily imposed on, and submissive. <laughs> That's not what people want to put on their resumes, People are not going to be like, I am very meek, so therefore you should hire me. That's not what we're after oftentimes. Meek people um, uh, often aren't people that end up being Fortune 500 CEOs or New York Times bestsellers. Uh, those are the people that are ambitious, that are uh, very assertive, that are very self-confident, right? They're the bosses, they're the leaders, they are the people that are out there making the decisions. It's not the meek people. In our society, meek people are often uh, relegated to doormats, right? <laughs> They're the people kind of stepped on as the assertive people kind of climb up the ladder. But that definition, quiet, gentle, submissive, uh, who would sign up for that? Who would, who would sign up for those types of qualities? In our society, I don't think there's a place for meekness. Because we live in a world that's live strong, right? Remember those bracelets that Lance Armstrong, it, it kind of became an idea. It, it, became, it became more of a movement, right? Live strong stood for something that you are taking initiative. You are living strong. It's your strength. You are doing it. It's your might. It's your power. It's your assertiveness. That, that's what's uh, making you push through. You are overcoming. And so it, that's why I think oftentimes when we come to this passage, Galatians 5, that meekness is something that's often glossed over. It, if you want to use this metaphor, it, it's like if all these fruits were in a basket, 
Meekness is the one fruit that we probably wouldn't miss if it fell out. We wouldn't necessarily be all up in arms over the fact that we haven't cultivated a meek heart with our lives. But I would say that meekness, as defined by the Bible, which I hope to do tonight, uh, meekness is the posture of the Christian. That if you are a person that believes in the Bible, and not only that, but believes in the gospel of the Bible, you are going to be a person that is meek. And that's not to say you're going to be a doormat. You're not going to be someone that's stepped on necessarily, but it's just realizing where your strength lies. No, some people have tried to uh, redefine this idea of meekness, not from, from being a, a, a doormat to uh, it's, it's strength under control, right? And I think that's part of the way there. But I would like to say that it's not far enough. Because in our, as, we've been, as I've been trying to delineate here, that in our society, meekness is viewed as weakness. And I think that just strength under control doesn't go far enough to sort of remove the connotations surrounding meekness. We need to go further. So what is, it, what is meekness? What does it look like? And what does it mean for us as 21st century Christians? Well, I, wanna, I hope to do that tonight. <laughs> um, so, so there's some pictures of meekness in the Bible. You can turn to Numbers chapter 12. This is a common scene um, of meekness in your scriptures. Numbers 12, um, in the first couple verses here, we have this really interesting scene. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 um, of Numbers 12. And here it is. We have this scene. And it says, your Bible says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses, and hath he not spoken only by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, interesting, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So here you have the scene, really intriguing scene in the rest of the Old Testament narrative. Uh, And it's intriguing also that it includes includes this sort of parenthetical statement uh, describing Moses' character, that he was, quote, very meek. But what's interesting is what's happening here is that Moses had married this Ethiopian woman. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily known if it's um, the, his wife Zipporah or not. It, it, I don't think that really matters necessarily for what we're going to talk about. But it, Aaron and Miriam, they, they come up to Moses and they start criticizing him for marrying this woman. It's, and again, it's not necessarily known why they were denouncing this marriage some believe, some co- I was reading, and some commentators think that it, it could be that, they, that Aaron and Miriam were afraid of what kind of sway this woman would have over Moses as he was choosing the 70 elders. If you go back to Numbers 11, that's what kind of happened there. Or it could just be a problem with race. I mean, that, knowing human nature, that's probably plausible. <laughs> it, it, it's not really known what was going on in Aaron and Miriam's hearts and why they were ridiculing Moses for marrying this woman. But regardless, the point of, the, of this passage is not the fact that Moses was receiving criticism. It's that it says that Moses was very meek. And if you read the rest of the passage, which we will, you'll, you'll realize that that is what is going on here. It's, it's actually a display. Moses actually displays by saying nothing what a meek person looks like. Look at what happens. Verse three, now the man of Moses, now the man Moses, excuse me, was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Verse four, 
And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. So God, Jehovah, comes down and he calls them out and he says, come out here. I need to speak with you and to you. And the Lord said, hear now my words, verse 6 of Numbers 12. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak my mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, in the similitude of the Lord shall behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, that is, Miriam and Aaron, and he departed. So you see this scene here where he kind of ridicules, God reprimands, Aaron and Miriam for uh, criticizing Moses. And Moses does nothing. He doesn't speak up. He doesn't try and take vengeance. He doesn't try and defend himself here in the scene. He's silent. That's an interesting portrait of meekness I think we have to see. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. He remains quiet in the face of his critics. He doesn't open his mouth. God is his vindication. God is the person who uh, honors Moses in his meekness, and God is the one that comes to Moses' defense. And I think that's an interesting portrait of meekness that we must keep in mind. And before we apply that, I want to go to another portrait, because if you turn to Daniel chapter 3, I think we're going to see another powerful portrait of meekness, another time when Meekness is on display for us. It's pictured for us here. Daniel 3 is a really awesome story. If you know the book of Daniel, the first couple chapters are revolving around these characters. I like to call them the Hebrew Three, just because it sounds like a band or something. But it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, They're taken captive by Babylon, and they're brought back to this foreign land, and they're brought back, and all these sorts of things. And and if you remember the story or the context of Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar has set up this golden statue, and he's commanding everyone to worship him. That when the music plays and all these things happen, when all these instruments start playing, everyone has to stop what they're doing and bow down to this golden image that he has set up in worship of himself. And if you remember your Bibles, you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they resist this command. Twice, actually. They, they don't obey what Nebuchadnezzar commands them to do. And so then these, these sort of um, these, uh, 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 um, advisors of King Nebuchadnezzar, they, they rat them out. They, they, tell, they tell on, the, on these Hebrew three. So then they're brought forth before Nebuchadnezzar. And he, he gives them a second chance, actually a third chance. And he says that if you don't bow in reverence for you now, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace that I have set up for you. So all you have to do, all you have to do is bow before me. All you have to do is put your knee to the ground and worship me, King Nebuchadnezzar, and you won't die. But I love, I love what they say. If you, do you remember, look at verse 16. Because what they say here is so courageously meek, if you can say that, and I will say that, uh, so courageously meek, it's amazing. Look what happened. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said unto the king, remember, they sang this to him with the threat of death right in front of them. 
The furnace is turned up hotter. Remember, if, if, after they say this, that Nebuchadnezzar goes and he turns up the furnace seven times hotter than what it should be turned up. But they're, they're saying this for themselves in the face of death. And look what they say, verse 16. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Basically what they're saying, we don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to answer you in this matter, king, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, ooh, those are good words. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. (laughs) They knew that their God was able, powerful enough, strong enough to deliver them out of this situation. He could perform any sort of miracle that he wanted, and they knew that. They didn't need to defend themselves. They didn't need to uh, 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 demand that they, they be let go because of this reason or that reason. They didn't uh, qu- quiver in the, f- in the face of this threat, in the face of death, and they give this glorious de- reply. They don't, they don't get desperate. They don't give uh, this sort of answer out of exasperation and say, please, let us go. Please, just, just let us go again. Be merciful to us. They give this reply of such courageous meekness. We don't need to answer you, king, because we don't answer to you. We answer to God. And he is strong enough, powerful enough, mighty enough, that he, because he's the creator of all this, he can pull us out of this fire if he wants to. But even if he doesn't, we will still trust him. <laughs> I wish I had enough confidence to say that. Or enough confidence to say that I would say the same thing, but I don't know if I would. <laughs> Gun to my head, I don't know if I would be able to say, God can deliver me out of the situation, but if he doesn't, I'm still going to trust him. What meekness is on display here. They stand on God's sovereignty and sufficiency for their lives, even if it means losing their lives. And that to me is a a remarkable testimony of what meekness is. And I think that's why we have such a a, 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 a resistance to meekness. It's because, hear this, that meekness naturally entails you being okay with losing. We're not okay with losing. We're a society of winners, we're society of, again, of people who live strong, who can be all that they can be. And in a society that's defined by those terms, sort of existentially, we can't be okay with losing. Losers are outcast. They're set aside. And so therefore, I think meekness is set aside. Because meekness means you have to be okay with losing. And that's why people were so offended by Jesus' message. Jesus, when he was preaching in the Gospels, he was preaching this message that sort of disrupted society because it was a message of meekness, that you have to lose everything in order to follow me, yet you have to almost hate your family in order to love God how you ought to love him. And this pervading thought, whoa, uh, well, actually, turn to Luke 24 really quickly, because uh, you have to kind of see this, because this is why Jesus' message was so kind of disruptive. It's because, if, if you remember, the pervading thought around the Messiah during this time was that the, the Messiah, the promised one, that they read about all throughout the Old Testament, you know, these people were educated. They knew their Old Testaments. 
The pervading thought that, that the Messiah was going to come with a sword. And he was going to come and he was going to overthrow the Roman government and bring back Israel to its former glory. It was almost going to be like a coup d'etat on the, on the Roman government and he was going to overthrow and it was going to be a kingdom of violence, right? He was going to bring about God's kingdom through force. So that's why people were surprised, alarmed, shocked, uh, dumbfounded at the fact that this guy that they thought was the Messiah and who was claiming he was the Messiah ends up getting killed on a cross with criminals. He dies a loser's death, so to speak. Uh, What kind of king is that? What kind of Messiah is that? And here in Luke 24, you see it. These two disciples, verses 13 through 27, we have this, this scene where you have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're discussing these things. They're walking and they're talking and they're confused uh, as they go to Emmaus. They're confused as to why this guy that they had been following has just died a sinner's, a criminal's death. And look, I like what happens here. And uh, Jesus, he comes up to them. And they don't know it's Jesus, verse 17. Uh, Jesus comes up to them and he says unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Basically, where have you been? Have you, uh, you not know what's been going on? Have you not been watching the news? Because stuff has been happening. And Jesus said, What things? And, this, and then they, they go on to say, verse 19, And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And who, key verse, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, restored Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. They thought that God that was going to send this Messiah and he was going to come and, and, and take the throne by force. And Jesus says, um, where is it? Uh, Then he, verse 25, (laughs) I love Jesus' response. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning at Moses and unto all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He begins preaching the gospel to them, taking them from the beginning of their Old Testaments to uh, all the way to the end and showing them that this thing that has just happened about the, the crucified, the defeated Messiah is the very point that he is defeated so that he can rise up again. He is mer- meekness manifested for us. They had missed the point of his message. John, actually, 18, verse 36, says the very thing. Jesus, listen to Jesus' words in John 18, 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus, his message was a message of inversion. The the kingdom does not come about by force. It doesn't come about by violence, by bloodshed. Not your bloodshed, it's his. But he says, my kingdom is established by losing. Because by losing all and then resurrecting again, I have won everything for you. That's what he says. He inverts the way kingdoms are established. That's why he can say in Matthew chapter 5, 
Blessed are those who are make, for they shall inherit the earth. We have to think about that statement, how it sounds. Blessed are those who lose everything, because they are going to be given the world. That didn't sound right to their ears, and it doesn't sound right to our ears. The people who are given the world, the people who are going to be the successful ones, are the ones who win, are the ones who press forward, are the ones who overcome. But Jesus says in that passage, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who, are, 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 who mourn. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We win by losing. Jesus even rebukes Peter for kingdom violence. Remember that scene? I love that, that scene. Matthew 26, you know, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the mob comes and they try to arrest him, right? And then, I, I love Peter. He, 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 he's there and he, he sees this mom trying to take his Lord what does he do he whips out his sword and he tries to defend Jesus but he misses the dude's head and he just slices off his ear <laughs> and what actually turn let me turn there um, he, Peter tries to defend Jesus <laughs> and he misses the guy's ear and he cuts or misses his head cuts off his ear and then look at what Jesus says uh, Matthew chapter 26 and Verse 52, or verse 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand, that's Peter, and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then Jesus said unto him, Peter, put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But then how shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Jesus reprimands not the mob that was trying to arrest him. He reprimands his disciple for trying to defend him, for thinking that the kingdom of heaven was going to be established by violence, by being a quote-unquote winner. And as much as we want to take matters into our own hands again, Peter was trying to take matters into his own hands that you don't have to die, Jesus. You don't have to do this. You don't have to be defeated. Jesus reprimands him. Don't take matters into your own hands, Peter. Put the matter in my hands. Because I'm the one who can bear the weight of everything for you. Jesus urges us to let him take care of it all. And that's why we have to see as Christians, we are not um, crusaders necessarily storming the world by force. That's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom works on inverse operations. And I think that's why we see, and that's what we can see in Jesus himself. Because see, this is where we get to the glorious display of what meekness is. is because Jesus was meekness in bodily form. He was meekness manifested for us. And he's not saying here, be a doormat. He's saying, know where your strength lies. Know where your victory lies. It doesn't lie here. It lies with me. And you've already overcome the world because I have overcome the world. You didn't overcome the world. I did. And you are now made to share in my victory. Therefore, you can't really lose. He's saying, know where your victory lies. It lies in Jesus And that's why we have to see that meekness of being submissive and being quiet and being okay with losing is the posture of those who know where their ultimate victory lies. It's not in them, it's in Jesus. And Jesus won. (laughs) Spoiler alert for your Bible, Jesus won. Read Revelation. (laughs) Jesus is the victor. 
And with Jesus, all is meekness. All is lowliness of heart. That's why we can see in Jesus this this glorious picture of meekness. He defers his throne. And he comes into our mess, the mess that we made of this world. And he comes and he dwells with us. He comes and he dines with sinners. He, He touches lepers. He heals the sick. Jesus is the meek one who stands in our place. And he doesn't open his mouth to defend himself. That's why it says in Isaiah 53 that as a a sheep brought before its shearers is dumb, yes, he didn't even open his mouth. He didn't at one time try and defend himself in the case against him because he was being the meek one for you. He was winning your victory. Let me read that verse, actually. I, I, I think I botched it. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Or 1 Peter 2.23, I'm kind of jumping around, but 1 Peter 2.23, it's a prophecy of Jesus, or a history of Jesus, and it says, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Jesus was quietly submissive to the will of his father. That's what he was praying about in the garden, right before he was taken up by that mob. Jesus is that meek one for us, who won the ultimate victory for us, and it's by his silence that the salvation of sinners is secured Jesus is silent and he wins the ultimate victory, not by force, but by deferential obedience. As it says in Philippians 2a, the obedience that led him to the cross. And this is the meekness that we are to display. It's the meekness that Jesus empowers us to display. Because again, how can we lose when we've already been given everything? You have to see that. that let, me, well, let me read this verse. Second Peter 1 verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Christ gave up everything in order to give you everything. So therefore, how can we lose anything when Jesus has won it all for us? See, that's, uh, I'm going to read you this quote from Spurgeon. I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon because he had a way with words. But listen, because... This is, he, he's, this is the one he's saying it. He says, oh, that we may never hesitate to be glad losers for Jesus. <laughs> because they who lose all for Christ will find all in Christ and receive all with Christ. Jesus won and he gives you that victory. Therefore, you can't lose. Because your victory lies with Jesus. It doesn't lie with this world. It doesn't lie with the things that are happening in your life here and now. It lies with Jesus. And he won already. He conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. That's where your victory lies. That's why we can be meek. That's why we can be deferential. That's why we can showcase this gospel of quiet submissiveness. Which frees us to be glad losers for Jesus. Because we haven't really lost We are standing on the side of victory. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Victory that Jesus won, not one that we have to go out and try and win by our sword. It's one that he won by his death. That's 
what meekness means. It's a culmination. I, I think this is where we, where we come back to Galatians 5, that it's a culmination of all the other fruits of the Spirit in one. That as, you, as, as the Spirit of God kind of works in you, love, peace, joy, long-suffering, all these things, he is, the result is a soul, again, that's okay with losing, knowing that it has already won. It has already gained the ultimate victory. And its confidence is not in overcoming something. It's in, it's in knowing of the one who has overcome the world. John sixteen thirty three. Let me read that verse to you. That's what Jesus says. John sixteen thirty three. These things high, I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace in the world. Ye shall see have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I have won the victory. Share in my victory. You can be meek because you are victors already. And that's why we can be okay when our plans don't work out. Because God has better plans. We can be okay when things change. We can be okay with losing this thing or that thing because Jesus' plans are better for us than the plans that we have made. His plans are better. His victory is stronger. His victory is forever. It's not futile. It's not fragile. It's not flimsy. Our victories are that way. They're short. They're quick. They're flash in the pans. But Jesus' victory is forever. And that's why we are called to display this meekness. One that is not about your grit. Not about you living strong not about you whipping out your sword like Peter and trying to take the world by force. You're displaying the gospel through quiet submissiveness, through meekness, through an utter dependence on the grace of Jesus Christ for you. And that's because meekness doesn't seek out revenge, just like we saw with Moses. It doesn't retaliate. It doesn't look for payback. It doesn't look for comeuppance. Romans, uh, let me read you that verse. Romans 12, verse 14. Um, let me turn there, sorry. Romans 12, 14, because that's an important verse. It kind of displays meekness for us. It says, bless them which persecute you and curse not. <laughs> See how otherworldly that message is? That doesn't come naturally to us. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when people persecute me or come at me, I want to go back at them. I'm usually not the person that's most quick-witted, by the way. I'm not going to have like a really quick retort. I'll be in my car driving home and I'll be like, oh, I should have said that. But I still want to retaliate. Jesus' message is opposite of our message. He says, bless those who persecute you. You know how you can bless those who persecute you? Because you know that you don't have to win that fight to be a victor. Because Jesus won for you. See how that changes the way you can approach uh, little small battles in your life? They don't mean as much when you realize that the eternal weight of glory that Paul speaks about, the eternal victory is not won by you winning this little argument. It was won by Jesus already for you 2,000 years ago on a tree in Jerusalem. Meekness liberates you to leave your reputation and all of your uh, all of the, your resumes with God. 
Because he is your victor. He is your vindication. He is your reputation. So then who cares what the world thinks of us? Actually, let me read you, if you'll permit me, I'm going to read this passage. This is from a book um, you might be familiar. Uh, A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. This is one of the first books I kind of read when I was uh, going into um, uh, or pursuing a, a call of full-time ministry, and it really impacted me. And I was reading it again because there's this incredible passage of meekness. And I want you to hear it. It's really important. Listen to what he says. A.W. Tozer says, The meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. (laughs) The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's own estimate of his own life. And he knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that that he is in the sight of God more important than angels. That is his motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And he has stopped caring. He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values. He will wait. He will be patient for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He is willing to wait for that day. In the meantime, the meek man will have attained a place of soul rest. And as he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over. He has found the peace which meekness brings. Amen to that. We have stopped caring about how we are viewed with the world because we know that's not our identity, that's not our reputation, that's not who we are. We know that God has put, uh, made for us a place that is far better. So therefore we have to say, as we come to a, a conclusion, that meekness is not weakness. It's not just strength under control. It's understanding where your strength lies. Not in you, in Jesus. Not in who you are, in all that he has done for you. Meekness is a quiet submissiveness to God's will, and it's also a peaceful freedom from having to always be right and always having to be regarded and always having to be respected, knowing that Jesus has won. And it begins when we stop trusting in ourselves and begin trusting in Jesus for everything. That's how we can be meek. And that's what we are called to do. As we looked at a couple weeks ago about faith, and we looked at that picture that it's stretching yourself out on God. That's the Christian life. Stretching yourself out on God's victory, knowing you don't have to get the victory because he's already won. That's what meekness is. And that's what we are called to display. Let's pray.